Welcome to the 2019 Wealth Standard Podcast, Season 1, Capitalism. And now your host, Patrick Donahoe. Hey, everyone. This is Patrick. We are going to be talking about money today in our monetary system and uh, have a, an expert with me to help navigate this sometimes difficult to understand topic. Uh, my guest is Craig R. Smith. He's the chairman of uh, Swiss America Trading Corporation and has also written a number of books, including Money, Morality, and the Machine, as well as uh, Don't Bank on It, The Unsafe World of 21st Century Banking. So Craig, thanks for taking the time today. I'm excited for the conversation. Hey, Patrick, it's great to be with you. So Craig, let's just start, like get right into it. Our focus is this theme that we have for the next uh, several months is around the nature of capitalism and what it is and why it's misrepresented sometimes. And I would love to hear how you, number one, think about capitalism, but also the relevance of money in a laissez-faire capitalist society. Oh, that's a big question to start with. Well, let's talk about capitalism. You know, capitalism, clearly, historically, Patrick, is the one form of societal thinking that pulls people out of poverty. And this is one thing that very few people are talking about. A perfect modern-day example of that is China. Look at China. They are a communist nation. We tend to forget that they are red communists. If they have to starve 10 million other people to save their country, they will do that. But they embrace capitalism. And all of a sudden, 1.3 billion Chinese people have a pathway to get out of their poverty. And so when you look at capitalism and how it changes a society, it changes a society because it eliminates poverty and it rewards merit. It rewards hard work. It rewards results. And unlike socialism, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to produce anything. You don't have to play by rules. You are taken care of. Capitalism is by far the most superior form of societal cooperation, if you will, than any other system out there. And look, take a capitalist like John Rockefeller. When he took over, kerosene was 85 cents a gallon. When he retired, kerosene was 10 cents a gallon. Did his capitalism help the average person or did it hurt the average person? I would argue it helped the average person. So are you saying, because I love the examples you're using, so, because China is not considered necessarily a, a capitalist society, but yet as they've kind of gravitated toward that, giving a little bit more freedom, a little bit more openness associated with trade, right? It's benefited so many people, even though it's not kind of a full capitalist society, even just small aspects of it make a difference. And I would say it's similar to the US. And because I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, I don't think there's ever really been kind of a, a pure laissez faire capitalist society. But are you saying that any increase in those tenants ultimately is going to benefit everyone? Oh, absolutely. It's no different than the principles of gravity. They work. Yeah. You can argue against them, but jump out of an airplane and see whether your argument holds water. Okay. The tenants of capitalism, when they are applied properly, work very efficiently because you have markets and markets can remove excesses, can get, if you will, the price right. And price discovery and markets give us the ability to be able to grow. So, look, I can think of capitalism. I can go all the way back to people like, whatever, J.P. Morgan. I mean, people think, well, he's just a banker, you know, or some of these guys that did the financing on things like electricity that ended up lighting America, that ended up heating our homes, that ended up allowing factories to run 24 hours, seven days a week. This is the thing we have to keep in mind. Capitalism takes natural resources 
in the form of steel, copper, so on and so forth, combines it with human resources, labor, along with technology and capital markets, and creates a product, and that develops an economy. And this is what we have to be careful about. Our government has gotten so big, government doesn't produce anything, and yet they take $4 trillion a year out of the economy. So, And they're also adding almost a trillion dollars each year by spending yeah, bringing in. Yeah, and it's ridiculous. I mean, we're on a glide path to where, remember I talked about markets get it right? Markets are going to get this right pretty quick. We talk about the national debt, Patrick, and we talk about the trillion dollar year deficits that we have. Okay, but people say, well, they don't matter. We were at 10 trillion. It didn't matter. 15 trillion under Barack Obama, 20 trillion. Now under Donald Trump, 22 trillion. What does it matter? Well, deficits don't matter, Patrick, until they matter. And the day that they matter is a day too late. So Craig, talk about the role of, well, first off, maybe define sound money. Like what is that? What does that mean? For well, those that don't necessarily understand our monetary system and then talk about maybe the importance of sound money when it comes to having a very capitalist type of society. Well, money in, in its nature has to have certain characteristics. Number one, money has to be divisible. In other words, you have a dollar, $10, $20, and so on and so forth, so you can make change. Money has to be scarce and it has to have a store of value. Okay, well, our money is not scarce. As long as they're growing trees, you can make more money. Okay, and there's no store of value. If you put a dollar away in 1900, that dollar today is only worth two cents. So it didn't do a very good job as a store of value. Now, in America, we used to have a gold standard. And when we were on the gold standard, our money remained sound. Matter of fact, there are many periods in the 1800s where the US dollar actually became stronger. You were actually able to buy more goods and services with your money. But when Mr. Roosevelt decided, to recall the gold in 1933, and subsequently Mr. Nixon closed the gold window on October 15, 1971, we took all gold out of our money, and we systematically started devaluing our money. And that trend is not going to change, Patrick. We are on a downward spiral to where one day the dollar, in my opinion, will be replaced with an alternate currency, probably something out of the maybe the Chinese or the Russians, or maybe even the IMF will come out and, and issue a gold-backed currency. So to answer your question, sound money has to have something behind it. We don't have anything behind our money anymore other than the full faith and credit of the United States government. Go look at a dollar bill. It says, this is legal tender for all debts, public and private. What the heck does that mean? (laughs) I mean, your dollar is a debt instrument. It's not money. Money, in order to be money, cannot be encumbered by something. All we use in our money system is an IOU that we pass on to somebody else. In other words, Patrick gives me an IOU, and I go down to the grocery store, and I use that IOU with somebody at the grocery store. Works Mm -hmm. very well, as long as everybody recognizes that paper. But if that grocer says, I don't recognize Patrick, that IOU is nothing. Patrick doesn't have any money. And I think right there is where you hit something that I just want to make sure that I understand correctly, because you're the expert here and and speak to it, have spoken to it for, for so long. That is, I would say, the relevance, right? Where you are making an exchange. I mean, money in and of itself, right, represents something. And inherently right now, obviously inherently gold has tangible tangible value. Uh, paper doesn't have tangible value. And so you, when you look at really the underlying premise of money is the, the whole medium of exchange idea where your work, your labor, your goods, as you put it, how you take the resources of the world, the material of the world, and combine it with the human mind and labor and production right? And it creates something of value to other people. When you exchange that, a person person exchanges that medium of exchange 
right? You understanding that it's worth a certain amount and them understanding that it's worth a certain amount. But then the purpose of the actual exchange is that for the person that's getting the money because they provided the value is now going to go out and do something else with it. But the certainty that exists that it's going to be worth the same amount when they go to exchange it is really where the whole sound money idea breaks down. Is that, is that, oh, is that kind of accurate logic? No, no, very, very much so. And think about it. Really, money, when you think about it in its purest essence, is your labor that's convertible into a currency so you can buy goods and services. You go to work every day. You work 40 hours a week. You get a paycheck at the end of the week. And you're able to take that labor and translate it into a tradable commodity. Okay. And this is what we have to understand that if that's the case, which it is, and I have to work 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year to make $50,000, but the Federal Reserve can push one button on a computer and create $50 million or $50 billion. What have they done to discount the value of my labor if they didn't have to do anything to get $50 billion, exactly. but I had to work all year to get $50,000? Yeah. That's think, not fair. Craig, because I think these are the points that I think those that have studied this really understand. But for those that don't study this, that this may be their first exposure, that right there, what you just said, I think is the, the heart and core of the issue right, is that when you have a a central power that has the authority to increase that amount of money that's in circulation through whatever means, okay, number one, it's fake. There was no value produced for that. And it dilutes and it essentially takes from those that actually did provide value. And it's everyone. And it's been going on for a really long time, as you mentioned. And I'm not sure if the head of the Federal Reserve right now, Jerome Powell, I don't know, I'm the jury's still out on like my opinion philosophy is, but it's still that the overriding narrative is to continue to do this because it's a good thing. Well, well, think about it. Governments by nature will never be satisfied. They always have to have more revenues. Okay. Now, if the government was to move your tax rate, and I'm just using a hypothetical here from say 32% to 80%, more than likely we'd probably have a revolution. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Okay. But if they leave your tax rate where it is and they devalue your currency, they can get the same effect. You don't even realize it's happened. In other words, if they hit you with an 80% tax, you would revolt. You wouldn't pay it. But if they devalue your money every day and you have to use that money to survive, they are in essence taking more money from you in the form of depreciating currency. In other words, they can't tax you, so they depreciate your currency. The Chinese are famous for this. They're currency manipulators. So this whole bit about our trade talks with China, it's a joke because if tomorrow we cut a new deal and they don't like the deal, they'll just play with their currencies and work it out through their currency. Yep. And this is what the Federal Reserve has done. They've stolen from every American. And years ago, we did a study about it. We can argue that there's been a hundred trillion dollars that's been stolen from the American people since 1913 when we formed the Federal Reserve by what's called financial repression, by paying people an interest rate that's substantially lower than the rate of inflation. We've seen that happen recently. And by using inflation as a form of taxation. And I did a whole paper for the Congress years ago entitled The Uses of Inflation. And I showed how back in the 50s, our Federal Reserve chairman, he wanted to do away with federal income tax. He said, we don't need federal income tax. I'll just play with the currency and we'll get our revenues through the currency. Oh, man. Boy, nobody talked about that. His name was Rummel, R-U-M-L, Beersley Rummel. And if you read what he was proposing to the federal government, it will turn your hair. Now, this is the introduction I made where the wool is kind of over our eyes is that this type of conversation is not prevalent. And 
it is something that affects literally everybody every day, as you mentioned. There are different ways to approach this, but the common narrative is so strong that a central bank is a good thing and it's the lender of last resort and it protects us. I look at it as very similar to how we perceive just government in general. Now, I say we, I'm talking as a society, not me particularly, but as a society, how we look at government, were governments there? Because if they weren't there, then we wouldn't have roads or if they weren't there, then people wouldn't have jobs or if they weren't there, then you know, gone like what? How many and, weeks now without the government open and things are still working? <laughs> well, and you know the fallacy of that, Patrick, oh, because the reality is if you go back 150 years ago in America, we didn't have a Leviathan government like we have. And people weren't dying in the streets for malnutrition or for lack of health care. I mean, we, we didn't have any of that. I mean, we didn't have welfare or Social Security or anything back in the 1800s. And I didn't see elderly people dying on the streets or anything. I mean, we have to keep in mind, we're a pretty benevolent nation and we take care of each other. But I think the bigger issue is this, and you said it earlier, it's important that we hit on this. Tomorrow, I'll be doing a national television show. I prefer not to say which one, but you could probably figure it out. I'm with them almost every week. I could never have this conversation I'm having with you, Patrick, on that national television show. I could never have because they say, oh, you're a conspiratorialist. Isn't that crazy? Hey, hey, the facts are out there, yeah. Patrick, and you know them and I know them. All a person has to do is read and use a little common sense and you draw the conclusion that this Federal Reserve is a very failed experiment. We should unravel the Federal Reserve. We should abolish it. But we won't because the powers to be, as I write about in Money, Morality, and the Machine, realize that the money is more important to them than the morality. And keeping the machine going in Washington, D.C. is more important than at all. And as a direct result of that, we are not going to see things change short of us having a revolution. And when I talk about revolution, I'm not talking about a 1776 revolution with guns and this. I'm talking about people revolting and going to the polls and saying, we've had enough. We want government that will work for us instead of working against us. Yeah, it's just interesting to see how humanity operates that way, where something really bad has to happen in order for there to be a paradigm shift. Or, Isn't or that true? Because right now, the paradigm, the reason why you can't have that conversation, and it's very difficult for anybody to have that conversation, especially with opposing opinions in an intelligent way, because sure. there's just so many layers behind it that it almost gets to the point where it's not the same context, and therefore, you're so many layers above context that it's just I'm right, you're sure. wrong type of type of rational thinking. Sure, it becomes an ideology. You're right. Yeah, it's an exactly. ideological yeah. argument. It's just yeah. interesting why it has because the physical revolutions, but I look at where we're at in our, our society and and I don't know. And I'm hoping that people start to wake up but at the same time. It's one of those it's most likely gonna be some pain where people like wake up and step back and say, Holy crap, like why do we need this? Sure. We went two months or well, how we're going to be in this government shutdown, but we went this long. Like, why do we need the Federal Reserve? Why do we need this? Hopefully people right. start like waking up and asking more questions, better questions. Well, and it's like I said on national television last week, okay, government doesn't produce anything. So why are we worried about it hurting our GDP? Government doesn't <laughs> produce anything. Government just spends money. Okay. Now we have to worry about, well, if the government can't process small business loans and small businesses can't operate and that would affect GDP. I get that. Okay. But as far as I'm concerned, if Donald Trump wants to do something really brazen, fire the 800,000 workers like Ronald Reagan did the air traffic controllers. They're non-essential employees anyway. Has your life been affected since they went on vacation? I say get rid of them. Let's get rid of a million employees at the federal level 
and let's reduce the size of government. And who knows, maybe we can even lower taxes ultimately. See, there's a big flaw, Patrick, and I want to bring this up before we get too deep in the weeds. The flaw with the Federal Reserve is simple to explain to every single American. Watch this. Patrick and Craig, we move to a desert island and we start a money system. You with me? Yes. And we get the local guys and we come up with dollars. We decide we're going to use dollars. So we lend out $1,000 to the locals at 5% interest. So now the locals owe us $1,000 principal and $50 interest, right? Yep. Now, if you and I only printed 1000 bucks, how the heck can they pay us back? There's not 1050 bucks out there. <laughs> so I have to create another $50, correct? Yep. And then I lend that out. And I need to borrow more and more and more. And that's the point. Every year, you've heard the Fed say our inflation target is 2%. They have to have inflation to survive. Now, let's just say it's 2%. So every 50 years, you lose 100% on your investments. That's not a very good deal. But nobody's talking about it in these terms. Yeah, the simple terms. And And it's flawed. It doesn't work. And that's why you wonder why we're talking about trillions now. Go back to the 1,050, and then we need to create 1,050 to pay back. Then we need to create 1,200 to pay back. And now you know why we're at $100 trillion. Just so your listeners know, if you were to spend $1 every second for the rest of your life, it would take you 32,000 years to spend $1 trillion. And we owe $22 trillion of those? Plus you add benefits for social programs, Medicare. Oh, yeah. Our long-term liabilities are well in excess of $150 trillion. So I look at, I'm glad we started by getting into the morality of it because a lot of the other episodes that have been done for this season have really talked about the morality behind things because I look at that being one of those foundation, not the only thing, but one of the foundational tenets that people don't understand. And and I'll bring up an example. Just recently, I, I made the mistake of turning on local news the other night and just to see a jazz game score on a snow report. And on there was basically, there was this huge rally of people that all like opened their businesses, opened gyms, uh, the food bank opened up for the federal employees that didn't have any work who were struggling financially. So I look at just the nature of us and the nature of us wanting to help. And there's this confusion associated with central powers, right? Like, what it is and what relevance it has and whether it's a good or a bad thing. But I'm bringing up that people naturally want to do the right thing and do good for society and government in theory, I would say right now, it isn't necessary. And you look at just how it continues to perpetuate and it just strengthens the paradigm and makes it all the more difficult to get people to wake up. But I think it's inevitable because of how extreme the negative results and the outcomes have been right now is just getting papered over until who knows when it could be any type of event, but when it goes, it's going to go quick. Oh no, no, I I agree with you completely. When it goes, you're going to see the unraveling very quick. And look, when people talk about a crisis or a meltdown or recession, we've got to keep these in real terms. We went through the great depression in 1933 If you talk to anybody that lived during the Great Depression, they're now in their 90s, they will refer to the Great Depression as the good old days. They don't see it as a negative. (laughs) Okay, we went through recessions in America in the 60s and the 70s. Okay, I mean, we had the inflation crisis of 79, 80. I mean, here's my point. When we have meltdowns, 
People get rich and people get poor, but you don't have people dying in the streets or lining up for food. It's not how it works anymore. And I hear people calling for, you know, market's going to melt down. And my gosh, you start thinking to yourself, is it going to be Mad Max at the grocery store? How am I going to feed my family? <laughs> no, it's not going to be that. It's not going to be that way because there's no benefit. I have one neighbor who half of his house is underground. I said, Richard, what are you doing? He said, well, when the bands of criminals come down the street looking for the, I said, are you crazy? <laughs> come on, we have a military, we have police. I mean, and this is the point. In run-ups in markets, people get rich, people get poor. In drops in markets, people get rich, people get poor. What we're trying to do is wake up the American people and say, look, we're going to have more crises. 2008 is not an exception. It's a rule. We have them every so many years in America. You need to be prepared for them so that you don't panic. Because think about it. If you didn't panic in 2008, you already back to where you started and you're way ahead of the game in stocks. So we try and show people that if you have a diversified portfolio and that you have planned your future, you're not going to have to worry about these ups and downs in the market. You'll be able to sleep well at night and know that you have a game plan that's protecting your financial future. That's why I wrote the book, Money, Morality, and the Machine. That's why the deal I cut with the publisher was we gave, for every one book we sell, we give a book away, okay, because we want to wake up the American people so they'll call programs like yours to discuss these issues because the American people have the answers. We're smart. Yeah. And sometimes our intelligence gets stifled. Because I've thought oftentimes about, as you said, like crises, I think are a good thing you bet. At, at a large level, even at the individual level, right? Because human beings, I think, are so resilient. And when we're put to the test is where we thrive and where we learn Absol and we discover. Absolutely. And what did you just say? It normally takes a crisis for a major paradigm shift to occur. Yeah. Is anybody going to tell me that we don't need a paradigm shift in America? Huh. Have you watched the news recently? Huh. Have you watched... Alexandria Casio cortez or whatever her name is, talking about we want to eliminate billionaires? That would have been real good. Let's see. Maybe we should have not allowed John Rockefeller to be a billionaire, and then nobody would have had light. Yep. Or maybe we should have, yeah, I know, Bill, Bill Gates. Gates. We shouldn't let him be a billionaire. I mean, he's revolutionized computers. And, I mean, this is crazy, the talk we have coming out of Washington right now, Patrick. And that's not more, and it's done under the guise of morality, that this is the right thing. It's insane. It, people should be equal. Right. And not understanding the nature of equality and what that actually means. Anyway, it's, it is. It's interesting. And it also just it goes to show that, you know, just this pervasive message. Right. Of what is moral, what is ethical, what how things should be, what the purpose of government is. It's just really out of whack. And there are strong voices on both sides. And it's just become this right divisive fight. And that's why the truth, I don't think, is really discovered unless that fight is. It just gets uh, magnified and then there's a crisis and then suddenly people wake up during that typically. But it's interesting. It's a fascinating time to be around where you and I can talk about this and it can be, the message can be spread because Craig, these are just our opinions. This is how we see things. And we've sure. both connected the dots in so many different areas. We've read similar books. You have a much more extensive education and background than I do, but I look at our ability to communicate our ideas. And, and I think that's just going to continue because there are I agree. principles of truth that are just true. And people feel that. And when it's applied to specific yeah. situations, that's when I think wake up occurs. But right now, yeah, it's a difficult time, but it's also exciting. You can start to see kind of what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. And you said something that really strikes me, and I think you're right on the money. You know, truth is, it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. 
yeah. doesn't change what the truth is. Yeah. I mean, truth is, and it's like a lie. A lie has to keep changing in order for it to live. Yeah. Because <laughs> if it doesn't keep changing, it'll die. But the truth is the same today as it was 10,000 years ago, as it will be 10,000 years in the future. And you said something about equality that I think is spot on. A very dear friend of mine, Mike Savage, you probably know his national yeah, talk show. He has a saying that says, you can have no equality without quality. Now, I want you to think that through for a minute, listener. We can't have equality in this country unless the people are quality people. Look at the people who are calling people racist today. Are they quality people? I don't think so. Okay. And we're looking for this equality on whose scale, Patrick's, on some guy from Black Lives Matter, on from Antifa, from the Tea Party. Whose perspective are we looking at here? And this is the problem. We've lost our ability to be human with each other. And I could argue it's because of cell phones and all this kind of stuff. But think about it. We've lost our humanity. If we lose our humanity, De Tocqueville told us that's the greatest strength we have as a nation is our humanity. So I hate to sound negative, and I feel very optimistic about the future of America. However, the next 10 years, I think we're going to experience some very, very difficult times. But it's interesting, Craig, as you bring up everything, what you just said in the last couple of minutes has been brilliant. I look at humanity, and I also say that during times of crisis is where humanity shines too. Because you you use so many examples, whether it's natural disasters and how people really come to the rescue. I think we're driven that way. We have this instinct inside of us to do the right thing and look out for people. And and there's exceptions, of course, but because we all have kind of an irrational side of us as well. But I think generally speaking in crisis, you have a lot of good that comes from that. And it is so much divisiveness. But at the same time, I look at, I had a cool experience a couple of years ago going to it was Hawaii with my kids and it was the Disney type of resort that they have there. And we were swimming and there were these guys there like gangster, like tattoos they had, but they were like human having discussions with me laughing. Right. I mean, it's one of those things where everybody has this humane side and we all in a sense kind of like will resonate or, or talk to one another, even though there's so many sure. differences and I just think well, that, uh, and, you know, it's, it's powerful, but typically the environment is what creates so much divisiveness. For sure. And what you brought up is so important. We should elaborate on this for a second. There's a book out, Patrick, that I really encourage you to go read. It's called Tribe by Sebastian Younger. Hmm. And in the book, Sebastian Younger studied war-torn societies, England after the famous bombings in London, Kosovo and Sarajevo. And he found out something fascinating. He found out that after the crisis was over, the people wanted the crisis to come back because when the crisis was happening, neighbor was taking care of neighbor, brother was taking care of sister, mother was taking care of son, everybody was taking care of each other. And in London, you know, they would go down to the air raids uh, bunkers when the sirens would go off. After the war was over, guess what the English people did, Patrick? They congregated down in the bomb shelters. They missed getting together. So here's the point. We as a nation, hey, do you remember how tight we were as a nation in 2001? Oh, yeah. I was going to bring up that example. Man, remember George Bush on that pile? The people that tore down these buildings, they're going to hear from all of us soon. Man, I felt like an American. Yep. Okay. And I got to tell you something. We are going to have another crisis. We have threats all over the world now. And I'm not talking about militarily. I'm talking about financially. We got China. We got Russia. 
Don't underestimate India by any stretch of the imagination. In the European Union, they're trying to hold themselves together right now. Keep in mind, the European Union collectively is a bigger economy than ours. Individually, they're not. But as a European Union, they're bigger than we are. So we have a lot of threats that we need to be thinking about on a long-term basis that are existential to this nation. And one of them, I believe, happens to be our money system. Because if you devalue our money system, how are we going to be able to fund anything to be able to protect our interests? So I'm incredibly concerned about the future of money because money as much as we hate to admit it, has a morality to it. Mm-hmm. And I talk about this in my book. Every moral decision in America has a financial consequence, and every financial decision in America has a moral consequence, and we're not thinking in those terms. And adding to that, I'd also say that behind every transaction, right, is the nature of a human being to provide value to one another and use their yes. user abilities, use what they're unique at, and also the process of figuring out what is valuable to others. So it's one of those things where money also has a very individual aspect in addition to what you just mentioned. You're absolutely correct. And look, sometimes people misinterpret money too. I mean, think about the guy that's got 5 million bucks in the bank and is drinking himself to sleep every night. He doesn't think he has any problems because he's got money. But I would argue his problems are worse than the guy that's on the street who's a drunk who knows he's got trouble because he can't mask it because he lives in a fancy house. You get my point? Yeah. Okay. And, and this is where we are in a society. Money is merely a tool. It gives us the ability to trade, to buy, to sell, to live our lives. It shouldn't represent who we are. It shouldn't, my checkbook should have nothing to do with the quality of human being that I am. Mm -hmm. And the minute that it does, we've lost it as a society. You said, what do we need government for? If men be angels, we don't have any need for government. Well, the reality is men aren't angels. And the reality is men do things very immoral. And that's why I was very disappointed in 2008 that none of the bankers or some of the people that created some of the problems like Mr. Mozilla didn't have to pay a price for this. Nope. I mean, think about it. Nobody think about what happened in 2008 and nobody was held accountable. Nobody. It was worse. They made all the mistakes, but yet all of their problems were solved for them. Exactly. And that's why I think the average American is getting very discouraged. They're saying there's two sets of rules. There's sets of rules for the powerful people. There's a set of rules for Hillary Clinton and those people. And then there's another set of rules for me. And I think that's why most people are discouraged right now. But the good news is we still are the greatest nation in the world. We still have the greatest capital system in the world. And what I'm hopeful for is that these politicians have overplayed their hands and that what we saw in 2016 is the beginning of, for lack of a better term, a new popular populism in America where the American people get involved. Look, I was very happy that the House went to the Democrats. Now, you're going to say, what? You're a Republican conservative. How could you say that? You want me to tell you why? Because the Republicans in the House didn't deserve to hold on to the House. Because in 2016, what did Donald Trump come back to the White House with? The American people said, build a wall. The American people said, did this, 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 this. He's doing those things, correct? Yeah. Isn't that what he's supposed to do? Isn't that what he ran on? Isn't that what he got elected on? And if we have more of that, then the people are going to say, if you're doing your job, we'll reelect you. If we're not doing your job, we're going to throw you out. And that's mm-hmm. what they did to the Republicans. We have a very healthy democracy. When the Republicans didn't do what they promised in 2016, 2017, 2018, the American people threw them out. Now you got Democrats in there. If they screw up, guess what's going to happen? The Democrats are going to be 
And hopefully the politicians realize that until we start promising and following up on fulfilling those promises, we don't have a chance to govern. If we do that, we have a bright future ahead of us. And it's interesting, Craig. I don't want to go off on too many tangents here because we only have a few minutes left. But I find it interesting, your last couple of statements, because you're right. And it really comes down to what we as a people believe and understand of the influence that we do have okay, by electing certain officials. And at the same time, we make decisions, election decisions, you know, in this case, based on our belief system, based on what we know. And I look at how we've been conditioned as a society to understand government, understand their purpose, understand their nature, right? And that impacts the way in which we vote, where we do vote because this person is going to create jobs and this person is going to do this and this person is going to do that. And I look at, and maybe you can end with your opinion here, is again, going to quality, the quality of a collective people right now, I would say, isn't necessarily making decisions politically, electing certain people for the right reasons. And I think as we shift as a society and really understand whether it's the purpose of government or whether not wanting to be taken advantage of because we're aware of actually what they're doing and why it won't work, that that will be hopefully the shift that can create some influence politically where we want different results than we want right now, which will definitely shift power. Well, I hope you're right. You'd like to think that the American people get it right every so often. The problem in Washington, D.C., and I wrote about this in the book, Money, Morality, and the Machine. The whole concept of the book is it plays off of Dwight Eisenhower's warning to us, beware of the military-industrial complex. And what we do is we show how that military-industrial complex is just a type and shadow of other things that are going on in our government. But here's how it works. The Congress appropriates funds. They go to build bombs, tanks, so on and so forth. We need that for our national defense. Then the defense contractors turn around and give donations back to the congressman and get him reelected. We wonder why some of these guys are in, like Ted Kennedy, in the Senate for 40 years, because they have this incestuous relationship with not just the defense contractors, but everybody that contracts with the federal government. Because whoever's contracting with the federal government, I guarantee you, is giving money to the political campaigns. And that's the problem. And if we break that, then Mm. we get our government back. We have the government. We have the best government that money can buy right now because our politicians are bought and paid for. Our politicians shouldn't be bought and paid for. The only people they should be responsible to is the American people. And that's why I'm grateful, Patrick, that you're doing shows like this. That's why I'm grateful for hosts like you that are talking about these issues. I am convinced if we engage the American people in a dialogue, we will fix this problem. We, the people, are the government, for Pete's sakes. Yeah. No, and I think you're absolutely spot on there. And there's a lot more of it going on. I think there were more podcasts created last year than ever before. It's They're a lot smarter than I am because I've been doing this for over 10 years, and there's a lot of success in the most recent uh, podcast. But that's also a good thing because it's helping really spread certain messages. And I hear more of it. And, and Craig, I mean, thank you for what you're doing. I mean, you've clearly contributed so much to people understand and trying to understand how our seemingly complex system works and where the principles and behind it and the morality behind it. So thank you for what you've done and continue to do. And, you know, we'll support you in every way possible. So let's end with that. Why don't you let the listeners know best ways to follow you, see what you're up to when you speak on this uh, national show live. I mean, we'll obviously post everything to the blog and show notes, but if you want to talk on the air about ways in which people can follow you, that'd be awesome. Well, I'm a major contributor to Fox, so you'll see me on Fox Business or Fox News every week or so. But the best way to stay in touch with us is through the website, SwissAmerica.com. 
Um, and as I said earlier in the conversation, the publisher is gracious enough for every one book we sell, we're able to give a book away. So I don't know how big your audience is, but for 50, or I'm sure 50, 60, 70 books, if they call 800-289-2646, 1-800-289-2646, and mention that you were listening to the program or mention Patrick's name, and they will actually send you a complimentary copy from the publisher of the book, Money, Morality, and the Machine, no hidden charge. They don't say, oh, well, by the way, it's $5 postage. Everything's free. You call that number, you put your name, your address, your phone number down, and they will send you a complimentary copy of the book. And all we ask you to do is read it and then engage with somebody like Patrick. I don't know if you take call-ins, but let's talk about these issues, yeah. okay? And let's get a number of opinions out there because I'm convinced in a multitude of counselors, we will find wisdom. And the best years of America could be ahead of us if we just fix some of these stupid problems that are very fixable. Well, I mean, I I think you see signs everywhere, right, that people are getting more engaged, more aware, learning. And there's a lot of accountability associated with media these days that hasn't been there before. And it just continues to improve and ensure that the messages that are out there, right, are sound. But no, we'll make sure that your book and the links to it get distributed on uh, everywhere we post the podcast and uh, in our social media channels as, as well and articulate that offer. So if you didn't quite get that number, Craig, why don't you get it out one more time? But if you didn't get the number, make sure you go to uh, thewellstandard.com and uh, it'll be on there. Great. And it's 800-289-2646. And once again, Patrick, it was great being with you. Look forward to doing it again. Okay. Likewise, Craig. Have a good one. Thanks for what you do. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. My book, the Amazon bestseller, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, a financial strategy to reignite the American dream is completely changing the way people look at saving, wealth, and retirement. Want a sneak peek? Head on over to www.headsortailsiwin.com forward slash podcast for a free audio and text download of my favorite chapter. Again, that's headsortailsiwin.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Oh,